Good morning, church family. Good morning. Well, that was a good good morning. I appreciate that. I hope you're doing well. I'm so excited about starting this brand new series in the book of 1 Corinthians with all of you. As most of you know, and some of you actually may not, but most of you know this, that at Waypoint, we typically like to go through a sermon series through a book of the Bible. And we like to alternate between Old and New Testament. This isn't some magic formula. It's, it's our attempt to be faithful to the teaching of the word and to get the whole counsel of scripture. So for example, to this sermon series that we're about to be in for the next 13 weeks or so, we're in the book of 1 Corinthians. Our next series is gonna be in the Pentateuch. So that's gonna be in the Old Testament. And then we're gonna go back to the New Testament and go to 2 Corinthians. Does that make sense? So we have to do sermons through the, a book and not to go back and forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Once again, not a magic formula, just something that we try to do just in our attempt to be faithful to the whole counsel of scripture. We're also not just diving into the book in our sermon series, but we're also diving into the book of 1 Corinthians in our small groups. So let me give you a quick little aside, a quick little plug, a little affirmation or invitation or a commercial for small groups. Join a small group. That's good. You're welcome. That was it. No, no, in all seriousness, I really want you to join a small group. This is something that's so dear to my heart. This is a place where a small group is an opportunity, as Eric prayed earlier, where you can live through the good stuff of life together and through the tough stuff of life together. We believe that Christianity knows nothing of a solitary religion, that it was meant to be done corporately and together. You're not meant to walk this life alone. It's too hard. God graced us, he blessed us with giving us to church and the local brothers and sisters to affirm, to edify, to sharpen, to call out, to hold accountable and to help carry the load. Small groups are the best way to get into this. Um, it's so important for us. We, we care so much about this that what we're doing today is right after the service, today and next Sunday, we have all the signups for all the small groups. We're going to have maps on this TV screen where they're all located. They have the dates, the times that they meet, the day that they meet, whether or not they provide childcare. We believe so strongly in, in small groups that having children is not going to hinder you from going to a small group. We pay for the childcare at your small group. So you, that's not an excuse. So go, sign up for one of these small groups. This is an opportunity for those of you guys who've maybe been in a small group, but you're like, oh, the day's not the best for us anymore. Got a new job or something else happened. So now you can actually switch small groups and not feel guilty about it. You're like, oh, if I left that small group, the leader's gonna hate me. No, no, it's okay. This is your opportunity to do that. But please, I beg of you, not just for my sake, just because I like to hear, I like saying how everybody's in a small group. It makes me feel good about myself. No, but it's because I want you to grow. I truly believe that it's so important. Now guys, not all small groups are the best. You're not gonna go to your small group and be like, yay, we're so awesome, and every time we get together, I learn more about God, and I'm so challenged, and I'm growing so awesomely. It might not be that way for you. But at least you're trying. And it's better than doing nothing. Do you guys hear me? Diving into the word together with fellow believers, holding each other accountable, encouraging one another, so important. So join a small group. All right, that's my plug. Now let's look into the text of 1 Corinthians a little bit. Paul had visited the city of Corinth and planted a church there around AD 49. It was a strategically located city. We'll put it on the map here for you. It's positioned on the narrow four-mile isthmus that separates northern and southern Greece. It had been destroyed by Rome in 146 BC but it was rebuilt about 100 years later by Julius Caesar as a Roman colony, and it became the capital of the province of Achaia. Because of its location, 
it rapidly became a major center of trade and a thriving wealthy city. You see where it's located right there, that little dot right there? And as always happens, when cities are located in major trade routes and where economic opportunities abound, it attracted people from all over the world. It was a vast melting pot of cultures, of races, of people from all over the world. And it had a place of stark social contrast. Writing sometime after Paul's stay in this city, for example, one ancient visitor of to Corinth said this, the quote's up on the screen, the sordidness of the rich and the misery of the poor were extraordinary. He said it was a place abounding in luxuries, but uninhabited by, inhabited by ungracious people. This city was noted for its immorality and debauchery. In a time to Corinthianize something became a synonym for, uh, synonym for adultery and perversity of every kind. But it was into this city that Paul resolved to plant a church, which he did in Acts chapter 18 with the help of Priscilla and Aquila. Now, when Paul left the city about a year and a half later, he spent the next three years ministering in a city called Ephesus. And while in Ephesus, he was there, and he began to hear letters, hear a good word back from what happened to the church he planted in Corinth. Now, mind you guys, this is something similar. Like if I left here and went to another city, I would always want to know what's happening back at Waypoint. I want to, I want to keep an ear out. And so that's what Paul was doing. He was hearing the words of what was happening back in Corinth. And this is what was happening. And this is what we see through the uh, book of Acts and through the book of Corinthians, that it was a mess. The church in Corinth was a mess. Now, before I get into why it was a mess, can I just say something really quickly to everybody in here in this place? Most churches are messes. Can we get an amen to that? Can I even tell you something even further? Our church is a mess too. I'm just going to be honest. I hope we're not as much a mess as other churches. <laughs> but most churches are messes. And here's what I've discovered in our society and in our culture. I've heard so many people, I mean, I just so many, countless number of people who come up to me and say, I, church has turned me away from God. I've heard so many people say, I can't go to church, it's a mess. Why would I, that, is, that organized religion thing is just not for me. Can I tell you, I hear you, and I get it, right? But can I tell you something, as a faithful believer in Jesus, somebody who follows Jesus, just because it's a mess, you can't walk away from him. I had a, there was a singer that I knew, and he used to say this about the church, is that, um, and I, I can't remember if he was quoting somebody else, I just know from, a, from this singer that he used to quote it, and he used to say that the church, yeah, she's a whore, but she's my mother. There's this beautiful idea that understanding that, yeah, we're imperfect, but we're meant to be together as a church body. So here's the mess that was the church of Corinth. One, it had false teaching coming up. They were in the midst of a prosperous trade route. There's Roman culture, Roman teaching, Roman religion. Um, there was all this kind of Greek, uh, Greek philosophy was coming in. And all this kind of false teaching was starting to come in. Teaching that maybe Christ's resurrection was not literal, but maybe it was metaphysical. Teaching of different philosophies that were contrary to the gospel message that they initially believed. We had abuse of spiritual gifts. These gifts that the Corinthians had might have looked impressive, but they were immature in their usage of them. They were condemned for the way they used them. We had, um, they were divided over personalities. Everybody had a favorite pastor that they liked. Oh, I mean, I follow, I like, I like Paul, or I, I like Barnabas, or I like Silas, or I like these other guys. They were divided over personalities. Their communion services was a mess. The poor and rich took communion separately. Rich got there early and got drunk, made for interesting worship service. 
the poor came there to eat and there was nothing left for them to eat. They couldn't get along. They were taking each other to court, suing each other. There was sin, there's hypocrisy. There was a guy, well, we'll talk about it later, but it was just weird stuff. And they had all these issues and this church was just full of issues. I love the fact that this is the letter that we're, we're diving into here. A church full of issues. Because we're not, I'm not saying that we're a church full of all these issues, but we're a church and we have issues, right? We're sinful people, we have issues. We're, we're in a culture, we have issues. And this is the context that Paul's writing this letter in. The allure of the surrounding culture continue to pull these young believers. Paul's letter to them is designed to address each of these problems kind of directly. That's what this purpose of this letter is. Paul's heard all this stuff that's happening and he's directly answering these issues that they're facing. And I think it's pretty easy to see how 1 Corinthians might have something relevant to say to us in our context and in our generation. Many of the issues facing the believers in Corinth characterize the struggles facing Christians today as we wrestle with the call of Jesus to be holy while the old life and current culture pulls, us, pulls at us and draws us back to sinful patterns. What we're gonna see as the Apostle Paul addresses them over and over again, is that he does not respond to the Corinthians with angry rebuke or a series of how-to instructions for living in the victorious Christian life. He doesn't come in and say, all right, kick that person out and then go read the Bible for five hours and then do this. Instead, 1 Corinthians points those relatively new Christians back to the fundamental truths about God and the gospel of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that striking? I found that so striking. As you read through 1 Corinthians, you notice no matter how the complex or difficult the problem is, over and over again, Paul's answer is basically really basic. It's no, no God that was revealed through Jesus Christ, crucified and risen by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's it. Grasping and learning to apply this beautiful news of the gospel with increasing clarity, with increasing courage, to apply that gospel to our lives every day, that's Paul's response to dealing with the problems that the Corinthians are dealing with. Paul's agenda in this letter, in, in other words, is, is if we'll allow God's word to do this work in our lives, is what's gonna happen is if we allow the gospel message, the truth of the gospel, to change and affect every bit of us, to rewire the workings in us, to rewire the way we're wired to this world, rewire our spiritual systems, then the clear truth about the good news of Jesus affects how we live our lives. The good news changes everything. The good news that our relationship status, our salvation, our hope isn't found in our own ability to do good or do the right thing. It isn't found in our ability to look or act a certain way. Our standing, our identity is found in the love and grace of our Father through the work of Jesus Christ. His work, his death, his sacrifice was sufficient enough to be accepted, loved, esteemed, and lifted up before a holy, righteous father. When my wife and I went through the process of adopting Hudson, we had to fill out more paperwork than a person should ever in their lives ever have to fill out. And the whole time it felt like a test of endurance. Do you really want this child? All right, prove it. Fill out a ton of paperwork. Not only do you have to fill out a ton of paperwork, pay a lot of money. And then jump through all these crazy loops. Get fingerprints that then don't get fingerprints. And then if it's too long to get fingerprints, get fingerprints in another place. But those fingerprints don't count for this place. So get fingerprints in another place. It was crazy. But we did it. We jumped through the loops, filled out the paperwork. 
We paid the cost, and we got the awesome joy of having Hudson in our lives and the honor of having him be a part of our family. In a similar but not the same way, Jesus jumped through the hoops. He did the paperwork. He paid the price to adopt you into family with God. Nothing you did to earn it. Nothing you can do to lose it. God calls you in a relationship with him through the work of Jesus. It is a free gift, and all you need to do is to believe and to accept and to live in it. Hudson is my son. All the work has been done for him. Paperwork, the hoops, costs, everything has been done for him. He is my son, and he needs to believe that he is my son, and he needs to live in it. If you're here this morning, and you've never believed, or you've never professed, you've never said, I just choose to believe this is who I am in Christ. If you've never accepted this incredible gift of adoption, this awesome good news, honestly, that's, I'm going to start off today just asking you to do that. To accept and to believe. Romans 9 says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, if you believe that Jesus jumped through the hoops, if you believe he did the work, if you believe he paid the cost for you, and what he's offering you is adoption into family, he's offering you identity, he's offering you relationship, and you say, yes, I need that, I was made for that, I choose to accept that, and I choose to live in that now, man, it is yours. It is yours today. And if that's you, we pray that you accept that. And if you do, and if you do so, if you're ready to do so, guys, at the during worship, during our praise and singing time, we invite you to go tell uh, Pastor Danny, tell one of the elders, and we'd love to even, you confess it to them, we'll baptize you today. We'll throw you in the water, it's good. We got clothes for you, it'll be okay. We'll throw you in that water, we'll love it. Because we'll proclaim it. Because guys, here's a big part of it. Why do we do baptism? Not only that Jesus commanded us to do it, but we, we, we do it because guys, a part of living in it is a part of it is making it, making it tangible, making it flesh for us. Right, a, part of, a part of accepting and believing is when Hudson gets to wrap his arm and sees the paperwork that says he's adopted. When he sees the work that it's finished, when he sees the pictures of us adopting him, when he feels his arms around him, he's like, oh, okay, it's, I, I can believe it in, in my mind, but I feel it. Guys, when we profess publicly, that's what we do in baptism. We get to say, uh-huh, okay, this is ours. We're choosing to live in it. So if you've never been baptized, we invite you today. If this is something that you wish to do, we invite you to do that. But if you're here today and you've been a professing believer for a long time, can I tell you what you need today is still the same thing. You need to be rewired. You need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to live life on your own. And it wasn't your own skill or your own strength that gave you salvation. It isn't your own strength or skill that will see you through this life now. Stop trying to live for today alone. Stop trying to be God. It's hard trying to be God, isn't it? And I thank God that I'm not God. Yeah, it's a weird statement, but it's true. If I was God, I would mess everything up. I'd mess up my own life. And I try, I try to be God in my own household, and it'd mess everything up. If I try to be God in the universe, it'd be bad. Guys, can I tell you this? There is freedom when you let the gospel start rewiring you. There is freedom. Because what that does, it reminds you that you're not in charge. And it reminds you that you're not all-powerful, even though we try to be all-powerful over our world, right? We try to control every little detail. When something stuff goes wrong, you're like, oh, my plan. And you get frustrated, you get anxious, and you're like, oh, that means I'm not God. Oh, that should remind you of the gospel that says you're not God, but there is a God who loves you, who adopted you, who called you into relationship. 
Let's look at the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to give you a quick little run through it. It'll be on the screen here. It says, one, call through the will of God. Two, sanctified in Christ, made holy in Jesus. Grace and peace from God and the Lord Jesus. Grace of God given to you. Five, you were enriched in speech and knowledge. Six, the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. You're not lacking any spiritual gift. Eight, God will confirm you to the end, guiltless at the last day. Nine, God is faithful by whom you were called. What is Paul saying here? What he's saying is all the good that is in your life, God has brought to you an undeserved act of grace. Paul covers all three tenses. Past, you have been sanctified. Present, or past, you have been sanctified. The grace has been given to us. And the testimony of Christ has been confirmed. Present, you are enriched in speech and knowledge and not lacking any spiritual gift. And future, he will sustain you and make you guiltless. God started and will finish the process. Romans 8.30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's salvation A to Z. There's an old American theologian, Harry Ironside, was teaching on an aspect of this when he was asked, what was your part? What was man's part? What was your part of salvation? And he said, my part was sinning. That's a good answer. A to Z, salvation is God's part, God's move, God's action, God's intention, God's power, God's direction. Both Old and New Testaments give the image of a shepherd that searched us when we were lost. Jesus described it as going after the lost, hurt sheep. And Jesus saw the sheep wasn't searching for the shepherd. Sheep was just lost, but the shepherd goes and reaches the sheep. In Psalm 23, it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Hebrew scholars actually tell us the word follow here is actually much stronger in language. It's more like hunted. Surely goodness and mercy will hunt me all the days of pursuit. And I love this idea of pursuit because so many of us, can I tell you, so many of us, you might be in this room and you might be thinking, Lawrence, you don't, I can't be saved. I can't know Jesus. I can't be in a relationship. I can't be adopted because you don't know the things I've done. I've turned away from God so long ago and I ran hard. I sprinted away from God. And so for me, this idea for you is this, this, there's this chasm. There's this gulf separating you from you and God because you ran so hard. You sprinted so far away from God. You sprinted for so long that this distance is, is just is so ridiculously big. But can I tell you something? The Bible is clear that, that God didn't let you just turn away. He sprinted after you. And because he's printed after you, the moment you accept him, he's already there with his arms wide out, reaching and grabbing a hold of you. Do you hear that? There is no chasm that the sprinting, hunting Jesus cannot overcome. So as far as you think you ran away, let me tell you, he's pursued you harder. C.S. Lewis described this, his process of conversion like being maneuvered by the divine chess player into an impossible situation. He was talking about all over the board, his pieces were, uh, were in the most kind of disadvantaged position, and soon he could no longer cherish even like the illusion that he had any initiative upon him. His adversary was making his final moves. C.S. Lewis says this, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, they might as well have talked about mouse's search for the cat. Oh, C.S. Lewis. You should take comfort from this truth. You didn't start this, you don't have to finish it. I love this verse from the song, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. 
What the first nine verses of Corinthians told the original audience is that they have all that they need for this Christian life already. And that they can trust that God is faithful enough to carry them through to the end. Do you hear that, believers? Guys, can I tell you what you don't need is you don't need some new kind of theological understanding. Those are good. Don't get me wrong. You don't need some new uh, eureka moment. You don't need some new spiritual high. What you need is that the truth of the gospel comes and rewires all of you. That's a very simple, basic truth. Here's what Paul is talking to. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians and dealing with hard issues, of immorality, of debauchery, of, of division, of suing each other, of, of spiritual gifts abuse, of so much stuff. And what does he do? He just goes over and over again. He says, hey, remember the gospel. Remember who you are. You didn't earn it. It wasn't Paul that taught it, that gave it to you. It wasn't Apollo, it wasn't Apollos, it wasn't, it wasn't anybody, it was the grace of God given to you as a gift. You didn't earn it. Why are you putting on airs? Why are you so anxious about your future? Why are you so worried about your present? If this God who can conquer death, this God who can forgive sins, the God who paid the fullness of price for you, says he knows you, he loves you, he calls you to purpose. Will you be reminded of the gospel and let it rewire you? This Christian life is so future-oriented that we need to understand the beautiful future reality that we have in the gospel. Some of us are living in the past. We can't quite shake yesterday. Maybe it's two years ago, five years ago. You can't get over it. Some of us are living always for the now, constantly in the moment, but always taken off guard by the tomorrow. But the Christian life, guys, I'm telling you, is future-oriented. And the particular future we find in verse 7, it says that you're not lacking. If you look at verse 7, Paul says that you're not lacking in any gift. As God's word is at work, he's confirming the word in their hearts. And God is doing great things, but in verse 8, he says, even to sustain them by the word, but what the Corinthians are doing while this is all happening, while the word is being confirmed in them, is they're waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, it says in verse 7. Their eyes are fixed on the final horizon, the finish line. And this is what gospel-centered, gospel-changed hearts always are fascinated with, always are captured by, is they realize that this is not their home that they have a future home. This is not their home. Can I tell you guys something? Just, I'm just gonna, I hope I don't shatter people's minds and paradigms or anything too much. Actually, a little bit, I do wanna shatter. Just being honest. But can I tell you this, that we so often, one of the biggest tragedies as Christians that we live like is we live like this life, this home, this reality, this time, right now is the only time. Do you hear that? We live as if this is all there is. Instead of living like there is a future kingdom, a future reality, a future home, and this is just a blip in light of that eternity. Can I tell you something, that you are made for something different? Guys, if you ever looked around the world and realized there's something wrong with it, if you've looked around the world and said, my heart doesn't fit. Why is so much horrible things happening? Why do, I just don't fit. I don't belong in this world. Guys, C.S. Lewis says the logical conclusion is that you are not made for this world. You are made for a different world, a different reality. You are made for a different home. Your citizenship, is, as the Bible says, is in heaven. 
And you're only here as an ambassador on this time on earth, as a short-lived time that says during this one time, your life is to live as Christ has lived on this earth so you can advance his kingdom so that one day you can go back home and God can look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now guys, I'm telling you this, and most of you guys are probably nodding your head. You guys grew up in church, you're like, yeah, that sounds great. Can I tell you, if you really believe this, if that really rewired you, that should change the way you live, change the way you approach death, change the way you approach life. Do you hear that? Because you could be like Paul and say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now guys, please hear me very well. You're like, well, Lawrence, I'm still struggling. It's okay. I'm not just saying like, I got this all figured out. I'm like, oh, here's Lawrence who's like, oh, death is nothing. <laughs> I'm so spiritual and I have no anxiety. And no, that's not me. I'm still riddled with sin. This is why I still need the gospel to rewire me every day but this is what we profess this is what we believe this is our hope can i tell you something i always tell this to everybody i really believe being a christian is a win-win we live in a win-win situation because if you kill us if we die we go to heaven yay if we stay alive and live on earth we live for christ and everything that we accomplish on this earth is in his glory yay i like saying yay this is our reality. We have a win-win. Do you live like that? Do we live in that reality, in that victory, so that when we face suffering, even if the truth of the gospel rewires us, even when we face suffering, we say it is only temporary and it has a purpose. Do you hear me? When we face cancer, and when we face loss, and we face health issues, and we face losing someone we love, when we look at that, and we know it's hard, and it stinks, and we hate it, but we can still look at that through the rewiring of our hearts to the gospel, and say, it's temporary, that pain is temporary, and it's for glory. Do you see that? That's the hope we have in the gospel. That's what it means to be future-oriented. My people, may we never be too intellectual for the gospel. May we never be too advanced for the gospel. May it change us every day. May we see that the, the, the past, the present, and the future of God's saving work is always his work and not our own. And as we walk and flesh out this Christian life he's called us to live, we can live in confidence that the good news has changed us. And our future home, our future reality is victory. Amen? Please, if you're here today and you do not know the reality of the good news for yourself, I beg during this time of singing that you go and find one of the pastors or elders who'll be up in the back over there and go speak with them. And for those of you who do know, who professed and living in it, may this time rewire your hearts to the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and kindness. God, that from the very beginning, our salvation, our identity, our standing, our hope has always been initiated by you, sustained by you, and will be completed by you. God, we thank you that you did all the work, you did all the paperwork, you went through all the hoops, you, you paid the cost of our adoption. So may we live in that reality. May we live as children of God, changed by the gospel forever. 
and our home, our future reality is heaven with you for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.